to be here in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You've just had a good dinner or lunch, and the sun is out and the afternoon is coming on. <laughs> and I've been given this time slot to speak in, so <laughs> bear with me. It's, we start out today in the Word of God. If you turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, please. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. That's 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And verse 1 from the Word of God. Verse 1, Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus under the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father. Now if you'll go to chapter 2 for a minute, still speaking to the Thessalonian Christians, verse 1 of chapter 2. Verse 1 of chapter 2. For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you that it was not in vain. And God will bless His Word. We'll read a little more later on. As you heard, the subject of sign is getting out the gospel message effectively. Getting out the gospel message effectively. And that term effectively, I think we have to preface our statements with some comments on it. In case the wrong thing goes through our mind, getting out the gospel message effectively. What does God mean by effectively? Sometimes we're conditioned to mean it means just numbers. Uh, so many people raise their hand, invite Jesus into the heart. We've been very effective. They've been very effective. So when we speak of this word effectively, what does the word of God indeed have in mind? As Paul writes to the Thessalonians here, and as we already read in verse 1 of chapter 2, our entrance in unto you that it was not in vain. It was not useless. So the implication here, it was an effective entrance. And if indeed it was, as chapter 1 said, they had faith and they had love and they had hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, then why was it effective? Just go down a little bit in chapter 2 for a minute to verse 13 to see what God means by an effective entrance. Verse 13, For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God, which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as in truth the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. Now let me stop here. Our entrance was not in vain. In other words, it was effective. Because when you heard the Word of God, you did not look at it as our opinion, the Word of men, but you received it as it really was, the Word of God. And that Word of God, when you received it, effectually worketh in you them that believe. The Greek word energio, where we get our word energy. It is with energy, with power, outworking in your life. There is a lifestyle change because you have received the Word of God. 
And so we see that an effective entrance was not just a decision concerning who Jesus is, but it actually changed their lifestyle. The Word of God itself had a place in their heart. For brothers and sisters, isn't that what we're born again by? Isn't it the Word of God? 1 Peter 1.23, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the Word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. The Word of God comes alive as quickened in the believer's heart. So James tells us in James 1.18, that of his own will begat he with us by the Word of truth. And so it is the Word of God that they receive, and it is the Word of God that is alive and powerful, and when it's now working in their lives. And so our entrance in unto you, it was not in vain, because there was visible fruit. The Word of God had preeminence in their lives. Not only that, but verse 14 of 1 Thessalonians 2. For ye, brethren, became followers of the assemblies of God. And that is a generic term here. The churches are the assemblies of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews. He could have said, you became followers of the disciples, but he didn't. Of the churches, the assemblies of God. In other words, as the Word of God worked in you, you began to imitate others and to follow and to identify with the assemblies of God, mainly here in context, in the fact that they were standing and suffering for the name and person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as he writes this letter, we start to see that as he said in verse 1 of chapter 2, that his entrance was not in vain, what did he mean it wasn't in vain? What was accomplished? The Word of God effectually worked in you. You became followers of the assemblies, and you're suffering persecution for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's just a little bit. We'll see as we go on what God means by an effective entrance or effectively reaching out with the gospel. I will confess to you that some of my thoughts will overlap our brother Jonathan as he exhorted us this morning. And if it doesn't bother you, it won't bother me. <laughs> for as Peter said, Though you know these things, I stir you up by way of remembrance. And I feel the Holy Spirit, as I've heard the first two messages, is directing uh, these thoughts. It's directing these thoughts. Also, when we consider a message, getting out the gospel effectively, although the title doesn't say it, what usually goes through our mind is how to get out the gospel effectively. How to. And we all, in our zeal for the Lord Jesus Christ and wanting to see people saved, uh, we want to know how to. We live in a culture that if you can have the right formula, the, the, the right, the right uh, persuasion, the, the, the right formulas we are saying, if I can find something that works, I'll hang on to it and we'll do it. And I want to tell you that in the Word of God, there is no special formula that guarantees results. I cannot give you a how-to, per se. Well, this worked here, and this will always work if you only put these principles into practice. So often, uh, something will work for somebody, and they'll write a book, or they'll have a seminar, and they'll say the ten steps of successful evangelization, or church planting, or whatever. And the implication is, if you're just clever and brilliant enough to put these things in that neat little order, it will work, and you'll have the same results that we had. As I study the Scriptures, you cannot put the Holy Spirit of God in that kind of legislation. You can't limit Him. There is really no effective formula that can guarantee results. As I study the book of Acts, you get to Acts chapter 2. You'll see the variety of the way the Holy Spirit worked. 
There you'll see that there was the sound of a great rushing wind. And then tongues like a fire came upon the 120 or so believers. And that phenomena attracted the Jews, the devout Jews that were in Jerusalem, so that they came to the house where the disciples were to hear them. That's nice when the crowd comes to you. And that's the way it was in Acts 2. And then you go on a little bit, you get to Acts 3. And Peter and John, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, healed that lame man from birth at the gate beautiful at the temple. You know what the people did when that happened? It says they ran to Solomon's porch to hear about this. Here you have the crowd running to want to know what happened. And yet we can't present that as a formula, can we? You get to Acts 4 and it's a little different. Now they're hauled in front of the religious leadership as prisoners to give an account for what they're preaching. You get to Acts 5 and God uses a different method. He opens the door of the prison at night automatically and they just walk out and the angel says, go to the temple and preach the words of life, this life. Now the people aren't coming to them, they're going out to them. You get to Acts 8, and the people aren't running to them anymore. Acts 8, 4, they were being persecuted. And it says, And they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the Word. And we see individual people going out preaching the Word. You get to Acts 9 and the conversion of Saul, the Apostle Paul. And the light shines from heaven, stops them in his tracks, Who art thou, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And he is converted. be nice if we could have that formula. Have a light shine on everybody, wouldn't it be? Then you get to Acts 10. And Cornelius, three men knock on Peter's door down by the seaside and says, our, our master wants to, uh, you to come and tell him the words of God. And he gets there and it says the whole house has assembled Cornelius, his relatives, and his friends. And they're sitting there. They said, God has commanded us to get you. Tell us what God has commanded. And so there we have a home Bible message. And they're sitting there waiting. We had the privilege in southern New Jersey a few years ago, by the grace of God, to see something like that happen, where people were tired of error and tired of false gospels, and God was working in their heart. And through contacts, they invited us into their home. They said, tell us the truth from the Word of God. And there were their family and their relatives and friends sitting there. But that doesn't always work. We've seen that same system fail as far as reaching people. And then you move on in the book of Acts. You get to Acts 13 and... Paul and Barnabas go into God-fearing synagogues where God-believers are. And there they say in Acts 13, 26, Men and brethren and children of the stock of Abraham, and whosoever among you feareth God, to you is the word of this salvation sent. And so they go into an assembly that is an assemblage of God-fearing people and proclaim the gospel in Acts 13. But then you get to Acts 16 and they're down by the riverside where women are praying. And there Lydia is saved. And then a demon, the spirit of divination, is cast out of a girl. And they're thrown in prison of all places. Their backs are laid open. And the jailer calls out, what must I do to be saved? And then Philip finds himself in, a, in the Gaza Strip, talking to someone in a chariot. And the variety you see in the book of Acts. You get to Acts 17, you'll see Paul in an open air meeting on Mars Hill, the Aragathus. You get to Acts 18, you'll see him at a home next to a synagogue. And for a year and a half, that house is his base for preaching the gospel. You get to Acts 19, and you'll see him for two years in Ephesus, in a school, in Tyrannus' school. You'll see him in the marketplace. Now, I say that to say all this. That to take any one formula, that this is the way that worked here, and this is the way that will always work for you if you just do it, you'll get the gospel out effectively. I can't do that as I see the Holy Spirit works in the book of Acts. Can't do that. Can't stand up here today 
As I said, we've seen by the grace of God blessing in home Bible studies down in southern New Jersey. We have also done home Bible studies in southern New Jersey and changed nothing and have gone through a drought. We're doing home Bible studies up in Rochester, New York as an outreach. And right now they're only reaching believers. But sometimes we've seen when believers are reached, they start to reach the unbeliever. But I can't give you a formula to get out the gospel effectively. But what I can give you is some things in the Word of God that God does care about in getting the gospel out that will please Him whether you see the results or not, as we heard this morning. And that's why I have you in 1 Thessalonians 2. And then we have some other things to share on this, things that the Spirit of God has used and can use and might use something different, some things that are happening in getting the gospel out. But first of all, here in 1 Thessalonians 2, where he's talking about an effective entrance, where the Word of God worked effectually in them that believe, there are at least five things in these opening verses of 1 Thessalonians 2 that are right in the eyes of God. Five things. And in our zeal to get the gospel out effectively, we do not want to sacrifice these five things. Having said that, let's look at the first one. It's very basic. We'll now progress to verse 2 of 1 Thessalonians 2. But even after that we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as you know, at Philippi, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God which, with much contention. Our entrance into unto you was not in vain. Why not? Because they had the right morale or the right mindset. We, when we were at Philippi, were shamefully treated. You remember that, don't you? Thrown in prison unjustly, backs laid open with a whip. They didn't even go by the law books in the way they treated Paul and Silas. And they privately tried to get him out of town, and Paul wouldn't have any of that. We were shamefully treated. And yet, when we come to Thessalonica, which was their next stop, we were bold in our God to speak the gospel. Could have found all kinds of reasons to stop. It's not worth it. The price is too heavy. In the same Paul who wrote Romans 8.29, For whom he did foreknow them, that he also predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Well, God foreknew, and he's predestinated. He doesn't need me. He didn't have that kind of an attitude. Bold in our God to speak the gospel, to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. Even though there was contention in Thessalonica, they had a zeal. They had a zeal to get the gospel of God out. A lot of people get zealous about things we are hearing. Sports or whatever, political causes. But I want to tell you, and I know you know this, but I stir you up by way of remembrance, that there's no greater cause than the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a shame to see the abortion problem. It's a shame to see the drug problems and many other problems. But the greatest problem of all is a soul that's lost forever in the lake of fire separated from his God. So Paul says to Rome in his day, in Romans 1.16, the cultural center of his day, who had all kinds of problems in their government, <laughs> I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. When a person is saved by the gospel of Christ, these things will begin to drop off that we're so concerned about. And so, these men were going to pagan cities where there were prostitutes and temples and all kind of government misdeeds and society misdeeds. They wouldn't try to change society. They were bold in their God to speak the gospel of God. 
Because it's the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God and the salvation. It didn't matter if their back were laid open. They knew they had a message that was of God. And as we read here, we were bold in our God to speak it. They had the right mindset. As we were hearing this morning, there's really nothing fancy about getting the gospel out. 1 Corinthians one twenty one says in our Bibles, It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. God takes a very foolish method just proclaiming the truth. And it pleases God to use a very humble method like that to save them that believe. The simple preaching of the gospel. You'll see Paul and Silas in jail, as we were saying. You'll see them at the Aragathas. You'll see Christians scattered everywhere. And there's nothing really high-tech about it. It pleases God through the foolishness of preaching. And they go into this place where there's an assembly eventually planted, where the Word of God works effectually. And what great strategy did they have? We were bold in our God to speak the gospel of God unto you. The preaching of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why wasn't their entrance in vain? They had the right mindset, the right morale. That they were going to preach it because God commanded to them, and they weren't going to stoop to a lower message. And they were bold no matter how much it hurt, no matter how much they had to give up. They had zeal to preach the gospel of God. And with that type of zeal and commitment, God used that to see some Thessalonians saved and so on. And so just briefly, the first one, the right morale or the right mindset. But there was a second thing they had right. And that is, as we've heard this morning, the right message. The right message. Let's go back to verse 2 again, please. 1 Thessalonians 2, 2. But even after that we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated as ye know at Philippi, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. Now watch the beginning of verse 3. For our excitation was not of deceit. Some of your translations, if you have another, will say was not of error, was not of falsehood. That is the meaning of the word. Our excitation, the message we gave you, lacks something called falsehood or error, which would deceive a person, as we were hearing about the bait on the fish hook this morning. And so their message lacked error, and as verse 4 says, But as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel... Let's think that through. God has taken this great wealth called the gospel and has trusted it to fallible men. So what do we do with it? Be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God, which trieth or testeth our hearts. And getting out the gospel message effectively, I want to be careful that my zeal doesn't cause me to present it in a way that wouldn't be the true message of God. I want to stay away from the mindset, I might offend somebody if I lay it on the line. Our culture, at least in America and Canada, is so worried about offending people. Uh, culturally, we should not offend people. First Corinthians 9 is clear on that. And we should not be rude in our presentation or proud. But the message, if it offends, so what? Is the message I read in the Bible. You see, they had the right message. Just briefly, I'm not going to try to repeat the wonderful message we heard this morning. But what is the right message? Our brother had us in Romans 1. You see, the gospel message per se is not, is not that Jesus Christ can solve your problems. Christ did not, 1 Corinthians 3, 15, 3 does not say Christ died for our problems. It does not say Christ died for our tears either. But it does say Christ died for our sins. 
For it is our sin that we're accountable that has separated us from God. And Romans 1.18 calls that the wrath, the anger of God. And although it presents the good news, the book of Romans, it doesn't do that until it gets to chapter 3, the very middle of it. And for two and a half chapters, it presents something called the wrath of God. Was that good news? <laughs> it's good news if you understand the bad news. For example, uh, if uh, I yelled out there, Hey, i got great news, a fire truck just pulled up. You think, what's so great about that? But if this building was on fire and I said, i got great news, the fire truck just pulled up, that statement now becomes good news, doesn't it? Why? You understood the bad news. And so the good news now makes sense. We tell people to receive Christ, accept Christ, and through their mind goes, oh, he'll, he'll solve my marriage, he'll solve my work problems, things like that. That's not the real reason. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven, Romans 1.18, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. And because of their sin, God's eternal anger is upon men and women. And Jesus Christ, as 1 Timothy 1.15 says, came into the world to save sinners. His whole mission was to save sinners from the wrath of God and this present evil world. And so we must bring before them things we are hearing this morning, the wrath of God. That is the basis the Apostle Paul, by the Spirit of God, gives for the motivation to be saved. So that's why the Hebrews, believers, were reminded who fled to God for refuge in Hebrews 6.18. Uh, the Thessalonians uh, uh, were delivered from the wrath to come. When I was 18 and got saved, you know why I got saved? I didn't want to go to hell. There's more to it than that, believers. But that was the motivation God led me to the Lord Jesus and then showed me a lot of other things. I knew I deserved hell and I was going there. The wrath of God. Sin separates from God. And the only solution for that sin in the right message is we are hearing of the work that is the blood of Jesus Christ. As you get to Romans 5, 9, much more than being now justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. That on the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ totally paid the price and propitiated that is satisfied God's righteous anger. And that the work is complete. Now, brothers and sisters, there's all kind of religions around us that believe that Jesus is the Son of God. He died and rose again. But the Gospel is more than that. Now, you say, be careful. While that is the Gospel message, the Gospel is a promise that believing in that message of the person, the Lord Jesus Christ, will totally absolve you from sin and justify you, make you righteous, and give you everlasting life. That if you're trusting in Jesus who died for you and rose again, you should not perish but have everlasting life. It's a promise of His, by trusting the promise of God concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, one does not perish but have everlasting life. And around us we have those who acknowledge those facts, but they add to it. Well, you have to believe, but you must do this, and you must add this, and you must, must do this. The gospel message, the right message is this, as Acts 15.9 says, purifying their hearts by faith. You know, that's contrary to all the religions of the world. That somebody's heart gets purified, clean, right before God, by faith and by faith alone. And then if you add anything, such as even circumcision, and say you can't be saved unless you do it, Paul says it's another gospel. And Galatians 1.8 says, As though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached, let him be accursed under the anathema judgment of God. We want to have the right message. We want to bring him a message that saves him from sin and from wrath. And if we just say, well, invite Jesus into your heart and he'll solve your problems. That is not the right message. 
The right message is to point a person away from themselves, to look at Christ crucified, whose blood has satisfied God, and Christ risen, who's accepted as Lord. That's the right message. And that faith in Him alone, believing the promise, it totally purifies your heart, justifies one before God. Plus nothing. Plus nothing, as religion says the opposite. Can you change the product of something, I ask? Can you change the uh, value of something or what it is by just adding something? There's people say that Jesus died and rose again. And we say, well, they're Christians. They say, yes, but you have to do something besides that to get sick. In nature, you have the atom, don't you? The oxygen, the element oxygen, the atom there of oxygen, has eight electrons going around its nucleus of eight neutrons and uh, eight protons. The number is eight. If you were able and just added one little electron orbiting around it with the proton, you know what it turns into? Fluorine, a yellow pungent gas. And instead of giving you life, it could kill you if you inhaled it enough. You just added one and it changed the whole property of it. There are those who simply add a couple things you've got to do besides believe in Jesus Christ our Lord. And it is a false gospel, brothers and sisters. It can save nobody but deceive them into the lake of fire. Our message, he says, uh, did not have error in it. Our message was that we weren't out to please men. We were out to please God. We don't want to change our message. We don't want to water it down. We're always afraid of saying things that will hurt people, as we were saying. How about Peter in Acts 2.36? Stood before those thousands. He said, Men of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom you have crucified both Lord and Christ. Oh, Peter, don't remind them they did that. You'll win nobody. And God saved 3,000. And there's Peter in Acts 4, verse 12, to the Jewish leadership, he says, Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Peter, don't make it exclusive. You will offend them and say their way is no good. Didn't bother him, did it? You get to Acts 13 and Paul's in the synagogue. And in verse 38, he says, Men and brethren, be it known unto you that through this man, that is Jesus Christ, is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. That was bad enough. But Paul, don't say verse 39. By him all that believe are justified from all things. Stop it, Paul, from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. <laughs> that won't do it, what you have. And it offended people, but they understood the truth, some did. And they understood the clear difference between the gospel of God and the religion they had. And that's needed in a religiously confused world. More could be said, but time is going. He had the right message, and he wasn't interested in pleasing men, but he was very interested in pleasing God, who gave him the trust of this gospel. But there was a third thing that was right, not only the right morale or mindset and the right message, but you also look at verse 3, verse 3 of 1 Thessalonians 2. For our exhortation was not of deceit nor of uncleanness. Some translation will have impure motives. For now look at verse 5, that indeed is the context. Verse 5, for neither at any time used we flattering words, as ye know, nor a cloak of covetousness, God of witness, nor of men sought we glory, neither of you nor yet of others, and so on. We did not have impure motives. They had the right motive. We did not use flattering words. <laughs> we did not say things that would please you so you wouldn't be offended and you would increase our numbers. We didn't work it that way. 
We did not seek covetousness, verse 6 says. We, or rather, the end of verse 5. We did not have a cloak of covetousness. God is witness. You see, in the olden times, sometimes they would wear a cloak, and the cloak would hide the sword, the knife. And then he would go up, and you'd think he's a friend, but underneath there, there was a knife he would pull out or a sword. We are not covering our real reason with the cloak of we preach the gospel of Christ, we love the Lord. That's just a covering for some because they're covetous and they know they can play on religious emotions and get money. They hand, they huckster the word of God, to paraphrase 1 Corinthians 2.17. And there's enough of that going on, isn't there? And they'll say the things that people want them to say and include false religion in their programs, won't they? Because they increase into the nations. Don't ever fall for that. Have the right motive. God cares about the motive. And as we read there in verse 6, Nor of men sought we glory, neither of you. Sometimes we can be in this just for the glory. Each evangelist will have to answer to God, brothers and sisters, but there's some, and they have these great ministries, and they call it after their name, and that always puzzles me. When Colossians 3.17 says, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks unto the Father by Him. They'll answer to God for that. I won't have to answer for that for them. I have to answer for myself. But this isn't a means for glory or to be famous just, uh, just for the sake of that. That wasn't our motive. But our motive was to speak so it pleases God and, of course, to see fruit for God and the salvation of their souls, as the chapter will go on to say. So we do need the right mindset. We need to be bold in God. We need not to let circumstances slow us down. We need to be excited about the greatest message on earth. We also, as we've been reading, need the right motive. Need the right motive. We want to examine our hearts and make sure we're in this for the real reason. And then we move on here, back to verse 3. And also the right message. But verse 3, For our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in gall. Some translations, nor in trickery or gimmickry. In other words, there was a way he preached it. You say, what do you mean by that? It, it lacked trickery that would mislead the people. Well, you say, what are you talking about? Now, look again at verse 6. Nor of men sought we glory, neither of you nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you even as a nurse cherishes her children. We are like a nursing mother. Now verse 8. So being affectionately desirous of you, they were, in, they were interested more in more than just a decision, quote, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only. Now watch that. What do you mean, not the gospel of God only? Isn't that what we are to give of you? But we gave you more than the message. What did you give them that was more? Verse 8. Not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because you were dear unto us. What do you mean you gave your soul? It was in the method in which you used to preach the gospel. Verse 9. For ye remember, brethren, our labor and travail, for laboring night and day, because we would not be chargeable unto any of you, we preached unto you the gospel of God. We labored night and day with our own hands, so that in no way would we be taking money from you. Although as apostles we would have that power to do that, that right to do that. 
We forwent that right because we had a bigger vision in mind and that was how you would turn out and you needed an example, a pattern. Now keep in your hand here, I want you to see why he did this. He saw something in their culture that he had to address. Go to 2 Thessalonians 3 just for a minute, please. He had the right method. In other words, a method is the procedure in which you use to get the gospel out. Do methods matter? They absolutely do. Second Thessalonians 3, and look at verse 7. For yourselves know how ye ought to follow us, for we behave not ourselves disorderly among you. Going back to what he's referring to in First Thessalonians. Verse 8. Neither did we eat any man's bread for naught, but wrought with labor travail night and day, that we might not be chargeable to any of you, not because we have not power or the right, but to make ourselves an ensample unto you that follow us. For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any man would not work, neither should he eat. And so he chose a method where he would be working day and night to get that gospel out so he would create for these people who lean maybe toward laziness or busybodiness, didn't see the necessity of working, so he would give them an example to also change their lifestyle as well as save their soul. For you look at that there in verse 12 of our chapter, back to 1 Thessalonians 2. Verse 12 that ye would walk worthy of God who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory. See what they had in mind here? They had in mind more than just salvation from hell, more than just a decision. But they had in mind a walk that God wanted out of these people that would be worthy of God. The Greek word axios is interesting. Using the Greek literature sometimes it's this way. On a pair of bounces of scale. Sometimes they'd put a weight on this side and then an axios it. That is, they put something else to equal it out to show the person had the equal amount of weight. To walk worthy of the Lord, that our walk is worthy of God who is holy, who is gracious, who is long-suffering, and who is righteous. That our lifestyle complements the name of the one we know. Now, to do that, we use a method in getting out the gospel. And our particular method was we worked day and night so you would know that if you don't work, you don't eat, and so you would learn the lesson. So there is a method, there is a way to get the gospel out that has more in view than just the salvation for that day, but the whole lifestyle of the person that will glorify the God whom he serves. I'm going to make a few comments on that. For in Christendom today, there's some zeal for the gospel, thank God. And there's some who have the right message, and I would never question their motives. Some others, you would question their motives. You don't know them, but you'd question them. But somehow we don't see the importance in many cases of the right method. As long as you're getting God's gospel out, don't dare criticize the method or you're somehow, you're not on the side of the gospel. And I would say to you, without fear because of what the Word of God says, that the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is not the most important thing in the Bible. Oh, I'm not saying it's not important. I'm saying it is not the most important thing. The most important thing is in the words of 1 Corinthians 10.31, Whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all to the glory of God. You read the epistles and you will find very little about how to preach the gospel. You will find a lot about a holy lifestyle and about an orderly assembly and about worshiping God and giving glory to God. You'll find an awful lot about that. You'll find very little in the epistles of, of exhorting them on how to preach the gospel. Not that they should have been. 
And when we heard you're in your first love, it's a natural outflow, as our brother was reminding us today. But it is not the most important thing. We do not. And what is happening, we are sacrificing truth on the altar of the gospel, and no one dares criticize the gospel. But, but you, you should use the right method. We live in an age where, uh, because of the media, electronic discoveries and that, there are some tremendous films out about the Lord and about the Christian life. But some of those films have no qualms using unsaved actors. That's against the Word of God, by the way. He doesn't need that at all. Ungodly helping the things of God. We live in an age where there are great crusades. And I thank God they preach Christ. But some of them have no qualms mixing with the false gospel in the neighborhood and treating them as Christians that have a false sacrifice, a false priesthood, a false head and a false gospel. And that is against the Word of God. If we got to go to a method where we compromise, we come together to do it wrong, we, we use things that aren't of God or, or we attach some money or whatever you want to it, they are methods that don't please God. If we preach a gospel and we delay baptism, by the way, you know what we're telling them? In, in the Bible, baptism was always presented with the gospel. You and I know it, it's not the saving factor, but it was presented immediately to do when you got saved. We are telling the new converts, trust Jesus Christ, He'll save you. But as far as obeying Him, that's optional when you feel led of the Spirit to get baptized in maybe six months, year down the road. I understand the confusion today, and you want to make sure they understand. But in Acts 10.48, when Peter saw they had the Holy Spirit, he commanded them to be baptized. In the name of the Lord. It's a command. We're teaching cheap discipleship when we say, well, that's something when you see later on. It is showing them that Christ not only died for their sins, but He rose again and is on the right hand of God. And I show my new life that is in Him. He is Lord and He's meant to be obeyed. For the Gospel not only saves from hell, it creates us as a creation ordained to do good works. Ephesians 2.10 Because Jesus Christ is Lord. And baptism gets that across because there's a cost to it. I think in some illustrations the Old Testament gives us, brothers and sisters, about wrong methods. You are familiar with them, so I'll just briefly bring them before you. You remember David and the ark in 1 Chronicles 13. That was a great thing he wanted to do. To bring the ark of God home to the city of David, where God dwelt between the cherubim. To bring that home. And David brought it home, but he didn't worry about little things like the poles that went through it and the little rings that held them that were to be on the Levites, the Kohathites' shoulders as they would bring the uh, ark home as the Word of God said. Rings and poles. Who wants to get caught up with the little things when we got this great mission and the whole crowd was wild bringing the ark of God home? But God was concerned, wasn't He? And so when Ozzah touched the ark, he fell over dead. And for the first time in that mission, in 1 Chronicles 13, 12, David asked the question, how shall I bring the ark of God home to me? He never asked how before. Do methods matter? Or does sloppy mythology defame the very God we're trying to preach? If you were a salesman of a big company and you told this, your employee to take this message out and present the product this way, and they did it exactly, and you sent them to a boardroom of executives, they, they gave they a glowy report of the product. And you heard he showed up, showed up in the cutoffs and an undershirt and hair out of his armpits and doing it. You said, well, what did you do that for? He said, I gave the message like you told me to. You said, the method, though, made us look bad. Methods do shadow God or do uh, give a picture of God. And Paul used the exact method here. 
You get to Second Chronicles 16, and he was a godly man. You know, godly men can do wrong things. Our mindset is, well, God blessed him, and he's godly. Who are you to say it's wrong? What makes something wrong, brothers and sisters, is not does it work, is not is the person godly, it's what saith the Lord. And so King Asa, in order to deal with a problem that King Baasha of northern Israel had built, uh, 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 Ramah, which was a fortified city, is a fortress, so that anybody in northern Israel could never make it to Jerusalem where the house of God was, where the priests were, where the sacrifices were. You talk about religious suppression. This fortified wall, the city of Ramah, did that. It had to come down. And how did he get it down? He went to the unsaved. He went to the king of Syria and hired him. And the mission was successful in Second Chronicles 16. Not only was the city of Ramah destroyed and religious freedom opened up, but with the materials they built two new cities. And they actually prospered. And you say, God indeed had to be in it, for He blessed it. I can't figure out how, but He blesses things He's displeased with. He sent Hananiah to King Asa and says, because you relied on the king of Syria rather than the Lord, God's displeased. God only cares about the right message. Who do we rely on? Are we relying on the unsaved actors and the unsaved false gospels to get this done? It's saying, my God can't do it. Are we relying on the unsaved money to support us and appeal to them? We're saying, my God might be dead. He can't keep His promises and supply our needs. Does the method glorify God? And so King Asa, who was a godly king, who did a lot of right things, was rebuked for not relying on the Lord. And then you get one of my favorite verses in that passage. In Second Chronicles 16.9, King Asa was told, The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the horror. You say, what's he looking for? To show himself strong on behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. God is looking for weak people that he can show his strength whose hearts are perfectly, completely trusting in him. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Second Corinthians 12.10 If we have our gimmicks and our high-tech things, uh, that's fine. But where's God's power in it? And so Paul says, in 2 Corinthians 4, that we have this treasure of God shining in our heart to give the light of the glory of Jesus Christ. He says, you know where we have it in verse 7? We have this treasure in earthen vessels, in clay, fallible, weak vessels. Why, Paul? That the excellency and power may be of God and not of us. We can outshine God in our methods, can't we? God chooses the fullness of the preaching. He's looking for us in weakness to rely on Him so His power will be identifiable. And that's what disciples need to see. It will affect their future walk. And then you have another example. The Word of God is loaded with these. And we need to pay attention to them. They're written for our learning, the New Testament tells us. King Jehoshaphat. And there again was Ramoth Gilead, an enemy that had to be conquered. And so King Ahab of northern Israel, who was a false religion. They were Jews, but it was a false religion. A false priesthood, a false sacrifice, and a false head, and so on. And a false authority comes to King Jehoshaphat and says, Help me with Ramoth Gilead. And Jehoshaphat, who was a godly king, who sent preachers throughout the nation, says, I am as thou art, and my people as your people. We're all one, you know, we're Jews and that. But their gospel wasn't one. One went by the law and one didn't. And the mission was successful as far as Jehoshaphat was concerned. Although Ahab died, Jehoshaphat returned to his palace in peace. 
And there he's sitting there in peace, the Bible says. And now Hananiah's son, Hananiah who went to Asa, his son Jehu knocks on his door. Here comes those legalists again, always throwing water on some, you know, damp water on something. And he says, uh, by the way, Jehoshaphat, should you help the ungodly and love them that hate the Lord, you can bind with somebody that hated the Lord, and the wrath of God is upon you because of that. The method, brothers and sisters, matter how you get that gospel out. It might be effective on paper, numbers. Did it please God? Did it glorify Him? More could be said on that, but there is a method to getting the gospel out. The last one of the five right things in 1 Thessalonians 2. If you'll go to verse 10, please, of 1 Thessalonians 2. Ye are witnesses and God also how holily and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believe the right manner of life which we heard about this morning. The right manner of life. Just briefly look at verse 5 of chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 5. For our gospel came not unto you in word only. Oh, you gave him more in the word? Well, what did you give him more than the word? But also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. Holily, unblameably, and justly. You know, sometimes in getting the gospel out effectively, you know why we turn to gimmicks and high-tech things? Not that we can't use a modern invention. I'm not saying that. You know why we turn to drama so much and we turn to movies and with unsaved actors and we turn to other things that might be wrong? Because we don't see that our things are working. And maybe at some time, sin in our life. Israel lost battles when even one person sinned. Or maybe just worldliness in our life. And we say, where's the power? And yet we still have zeal. And so we start turning to these gimmicks rather than the foolishness of preaching and a pure life and in prayer before God. We start turning to other things. If I could apply Second Chronicles 7.14, Solomon said concerning Israel, if my people which are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my faith and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. This is a spiritual battle. Many times there is sin or worldliness in our life. We're too involved with the entertainment to take time to learn the right messages we heard or, or, or to have time to even go out. The method, it is the God behind the method. And I can tell you when I'm there, there is prayer there and there's godly living there and there's preaching there. I'm not against music, but you would never design the way they reach him. I remember there for the high school night I was there, and the first thing Eddie did, Eddie Williams Jr., he got up and he said, what's your verse this week, 16, 17, 18-year-old kids? They'd say the verse, and he'd toss them a sugar daddy. <laughs> and then there was no music, no entertainment at all. And I said, well, how long do you want me to preach? Oh, I'll take about an hour. An hour, just preach, yeah. And there was the preaching of the Word. And that was the main thing, and God blesses that. We've seen simple things work, like prayer and preaching the Word. It has worked when God's in it. And it's not a formula. There's about 20, 30 miles from here in Jersey City. I believe our brother Sal's here. He's an elder in the assembly. And God has blessed that assembly in a unique way. A few years ago, some got saved, really, apart from any direct witnessing of the assembly. In fact, when they got saved, they began to teach themselves in a Bible study, and they walked into the assembly one day. And I understand it took a little while to get over to culture shock, but God has worked things out. Uh, Kaz Ortez, who some of you might know, was saved up the street. 
had a long jacket, he says, a punk rock haircut. You'd have never gone up to him probably. But he's saved and he loves the Lord and he loves his word today and he's in the assembly and there's others. And I asked Kaz, I said, write me a letter of what's going on there. So I'm not here to give my experience as much. We've seen God's hand as sometimes others we haven't. Right now in Rochester, the believers are being edified, but it's slow concerning the unsaved. They're affluent up there and nobody's coming to the city. But we're praying before God. I'm not looking for a new gimmick. I'm looking for the power of God. But here's what Kaz wrote me. And in closing, before we take a question or two, we have about six minutes left. Seven. <laughs> uh, I'll read this. Brother Randy, this is only about 20, 30 miles away here. It's right across from New York City here in Jersey City. Greetings in the Savior's name. Thinking now about our evangelistic efforts, all I can say is praise the Lord for the open door to proclaim His good news. As you already know, our chapel is composed of several young people. Uh, you'd have to meet these young people. Some of you have. They've been from the streets of Jersey City and New York City, and, and uh, they're a stereotype. They came down to see us in Ocean City a few years ago with their leather jackets on. We took them in the store, and everybody went for their wallet. But they didn't know they were born again. <laughs> anyway, as you already know, our chapel is composed of several young people. Thank God these saints are spiritually minded and ready to do God's work. Anyhow, our midweek meeting is a Tuesday night prayer meeting. We took this opportunity, based on our burden for the lost, to meet earlier on Tuesday before prayer to give out gospel tracts. This burden stemmed from a few young people and then expressed to others, and they also caught the vision for the Lord's work. So we met after a long day's work at 7 p.m. for prayer. Here's prayer. And distribution of tracts among ourselves. There's simple communication, preaching. Then from 7.20 to 8 p.m., we strolled the nearby park and the avenues with tracks stamped with the chapel's address. At 8 p.m., we headed back to the chapel for prayer meeting to pray for those to whom we witnessed to and God gave out tracks to. It's been now approximately three years since we've been doing this, and the Lord gives us a fresh vision each week. We've consolidated a list of those whom we've come in contact with and pray for them. The list is up to approximately 200 names or more. Those in the avenues already know we're believers and are willing to talk to us now. Before it was hard to first get to them to open up, but consistency is the key. Faithfulness still works. It's a great testimony for the Lord in the chapel. The fruit is minor, but we expect a harvest this year. It also keeps our fire going. From this track ministry on Tuesday, it opened up another door to have several open-air meetings in the park. After one Tuesday night, Richie and myself felt very burdened for the young people, uh, Around today, Richie was in a family with a broken home on drugs, and now he has the gift of an evangelist going on for God. We saw them just living for the present, going after the girls and fulfilling the desires of their flesh with no conviction. We saw that no one was teaching our youth any morals or any truth. This led us to pray for an open door at the park to pour into them confused teens the love of our blessed Lord. See, the prayer, the preaching, the simple things, but God's working. So we shared this with the other young people and made it a matter of prayer and a matter of action. While we were praying, I was also bringing it before the oversight for guidance and suggestions. They thought it was a great idea if others felt they can commit themselves to this work. Many souls committed themselves and it seemed that this could happen. I wrote letters to the Division of Parks and Forestry and the local police for authorization to use the park. By God's grace, the necessary papers were approved and we are on our way. The Division of Parks even provided for the sound system for us to use in our messages, God is good. So for three consecutive weeks, every Friday and Saturday at 7.30 p.m., we proclaim the gospel through song, testimony, and preaching. Much involvement from the older saints was encouraging, and many souls heard the good news. The results were several souls saved 
and brought into fellowship. One lady, Medeos, the names are tough. There's Angel and Kaz and Pepe and things like that. Medeos is so excited about her faith in the Lord that it is a refreshment to the heart of her joined Christ. She inquired about the head covering, and Rosie, that's another girl who was saved a while back, took, took the time to explain from the Scripture the reason, and now she, through obedience to the Lord, wears a head covering. These young people are not only zealous for Christ, they're zealous for the Word, the assembly of God. It's thrilling to see. They're not perfect. But uh, it's thrilling to see. So now we're looking forward to following up on these new saints and give them foundational truths from the Word. And he closes with some personal comments and an exhortation to elders. While elders can't do everything, you can't shepherd a sheep and be on every street corner. Encourage, he says, have them encourage us in going out and encouraging their people and speaking the gospel, even if they personally can't do it all the time. That's what God is doing 20 or 30 miles from here. In the other case, just 10 miles from here. So I close with this. How do you get the gospel out effectively? I have no formula, no work. But I do see three things in the Word of God. First, those five right things. Prayer. Get alone. As as an assembly, seek God's face. Purity. Is there things we need to confess in our life? And the simple preaching of the Word. For it's the power of God and the salvation to them that believe. May God encourage you in these old-fashioned ways, but they're still being used by our living God today. Before we take two questions in two minutes, or how many questions, maybe one, let's close in prayer. Our Father, we just again thank Thee in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We, we thank Thee for His blood of the cross, His resurrection. And Father, He has put a treasure in earthen vessels. But Lord, how we need to rely on Thee and Thy Spirit. It is not in our gimmickry or our great planning, although sometimes You use planning. But Lord, the excellency and powers of Thee. And Father, encourage us, including the speaker himself, in prayer and in purity, and not be afraid of the preaching of the cross, which will offend, but also is the power of God unto the salvation. Father, just blessed by words, encourage thy saints this morning in a world that's against us, in the name and for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank, thank you. By the way, I was saved on the last night of six weeks of gospelings in the assembly building. While the assembly was for the believers, they opened up the building for that. And that's not wrong either to get back into a series of gospel meetings. Uh, the sixth week on the last night, God uh, in His grace saved me. So there's different methods He can use, and we can't be afraid of them if He's in it. Thank you. All right, thank you, Randy. But it's the same God consistent that's behind all of this that does it. Instruments, channels only. Now we'll be going down for uh, some special things provided us in the coffee break and then back at uh, 3.15 to hear Brother Arthur Garns as we have here on the schedule. I think we'll just go now, if you will, and uh, listen for the bell to return. Thank you.